You're listening to True Crime Chronicles. No way he could have lived out there without electricity, without, you know, money or... Um, and to this day, maybe some people still don't believe that he did it, but, you know, all of the evidence points to the fact that he did, and it was this, like, mystery... For True Crime Chronicles, I'm Will Johnson. I'm here, as always, with Jessica Knoll and Spencer Brudig. And this week, we are covering a story that's a little bit different. We've covered a, a fair amount of, I would say, brutal crime stories in recent weeks. And so this one, while it does deal with crime, it also deals with other aspects, I think, of, of human nature. Yeah, today we have a true mystery, something that has a lot of twists and turns and has a very unexpected lead character in it. So, Spencer, kind of set the scene for us. Uh, where this, Where is the story located? So, this mystery takes place in central Maine, which is heavily forested, uh, kind of working class, very rural, uh, where a lot of folks have second cabins to escape uh, the hustle and bustle of their normal lives. All right. Thanks to WCSH News Center, Maine, in Portland, Maine, helping us out with this story. Spencer, let's get into the story of the North Pond Hermit. It's a pretty dark summer night in rural central Maine. Inside one of the hundreds of cabins close to North Pond Lake, a man sits in the dark, completely still. He has a loaded .357 Magnum in his hand. Like a hunter in a blind, he waits for his prey. He's been up 13 consecutive nights waiting to finally strike. But this man is not preying on some innocent victim. His name is Neil Patterson, and he's actually the owner of this particular cabin. And tonight, like every night the past two weeks, he lies in wait for an almost mythic figure in this part of the country to break into his house. More apparition than man, no one has actually ever seen this person or thing. But rather than this being a horror story, it's far more mystery and is significantly more nuanced. But for years, even decades, this specter has been haunting the cabins of this small lakeside community. Even when I tell this story, it gives me like a little bit of like goosebumps because it's like, is this just a fable or is this true? And it has that fable feel. This is Michael Finkel. He's an author who has covered this case extensively and wrote a book on it called The Stranger in the Woods. So at first people were confused. Like uh, one person told me that, uh, you know, it was an evening and they have a wood-burning stove. These are very basic cabins. Some don't even have running water. They're not fancy at all. This is central Maine. This isn't the moneyed coast of Maine. This is the blue-collar interior of Maine. These are people that have real jobs. A lot of them work in factories, paper factories, etc., and use these cabins to escape for the weekend. In 1987, some locals start noticing things sort of missing from their house and an uneasiness settles into the community. One guy said to me, I know he was going out to his uh, woodpile to feed his wood-burning stove, flipped on his flashlight, it didn't work. This is an organized guy, he got to his backup flashlight, flipped it on, didn't work. Guy actually had a third flashlight, flipped it on, didn't work. Something about the weight of the three flashlights felt weird in his hands and he unscrewed the top and all the batteries were missing. That's sort of odd, but... Do you call the police? No, you don't call the police. You look around your house, your TV's there, your jewelry's there, no no signs of entry, but it's just a little disconcerting. Another person said, you know, they were sure they left their Stephen King novel on the bedside table and two steaks in the freezer, and neither of them were there, but the door was locked when they got back to their cabin. At first, most people just kind of figured they misplaced things. Maybe a family member came in and accidentally grabbed their favorite novel off the shelf. 
and it's getting a little kind of disconcerting. I wouldn't say creepy, but it's like it's sort of not funny enough to be a joke and not serious enough serious enough to be a crime. It's sort of this unsettling place in between the two. And people would look even closer at their house. And then when you get really, really close, some people looked down their windows and saw that the hasp where you unlock the window seemed to be scraped. And that there were these little file shavings of plastic or wood that had ended up on the windowsill. And you're thinking, huh, somebody has been inside my house. And then you do call the police. And the police answered and said, yeah, this is like the 10th call we've gotten about something similar. Don't worry. We know about this. We're going to capture the guy. And 10 years pass. And it's the same thing. And nobody even knows this guy's name. So, the legend grows. Jeans are stolen from one cabin one day, then three issues of National Geographic from another. Down the road, someone's refrigerator has been rummaged through, and yet another spare propane tank has been taken from a fourth cabin. Investigators search the woods. They question neighboring townspeople. They even up their patrols of the neighborhood. But calls are still coming in of someone being in their house. Then, some years later, in the mid-1990s, The very first piece of evidence was collected. And game cameras or little cameras, which used to be extremely expensive, not only get cheap, they get small and you could hide them. And one family hides the camera inside of a smoke detector. And guess what? They get a photo of this guy. And by the way, in those 10 years, you know, nobody knew if it was a guy or if it was a girl, or if it was a gang of people. In fact, a common theory was that it was like a teenage gang initiation. Like, to get into this gang, you have to break into someone's house and steal a steak and not get caught. They didn't know. Was it, one of the, was it a you know, disgruntled Vietnam vet? Was it one of those hijackers from the 1970s? You know, was it a neighbor? Was it someone from out of state? They decided sort of the communities of these lakes gave this mystery a name, and they called him... The Hermit of North Pond, North Pond being the biggest body of water in the central Maine area. But nobody really knew who the Hermit of North Pond was. And then a photo is taken, and the picture it showed was a little unusual. Someone seemed to be quite clean-shaven, almost a little, not fat, but not frail and emaciated, not with a huge beard, and the police were certain that they would catch the hermit now, and they brought the picture around to post offices and local um, general stores, and they posted it up, and the police were certain that an arrest was imminent. And 10 more years pass. And at this point, more than 20 years into the mystery, it is... It's like there's, like, the Loch Ness Monster, the Himalayan Yeti, and the North pond hermit. There are kids who grew up with hermit stories, now have kids of their own. People did not know what to make of it. There were propane tanks missing, all your National Geographics, your frozen chicken, just no matter what kind of people put better locks on and security systems, no matter what, there were things stolen. And after more than 25 years, finally a game warden, a local game warden, named Terry Hughes, a guy who had been in the Marines for more than a dozen years and then in game warden service for 18 years and lived in the region full-time, so his house was never broken into, said, I'm going to solve this. In 2012, 
Game Warden Hughes goes to Homeland Security and gets the equipment needed to wire up the woods with cameras and silent alarms. His main target is a summer camp that has a huge stockpile of canned goods that the Hermit of North Pond has often broken into. He sets up his trap and waits for months. Practice going from his bedroom to this summer camp every day till he got it down to under four minutes. One day the silent alarm is triggered. He makes it all the way to the camp and arrests this person after 27 years, you know, dead to rights, got him in the act of stealing. And it turned out that this myth of this person who could silently walk through the woods and break into houses and live in a tent, this myth was true. So so this game warden, he, he has him at gunpoint and he says, what does he do? Arrests him at gunpoint, handcuffs him. It takes a little while before the hermit even speaks a word in the story he tells, which is, oh yeah, I, I don't have an address. I don't collect, you know, where do you, where do you have your mail sent? I don't have any mail. You know, what about social security check? No, where do you live? In the woods? For how long? You know, what year is it now, the hermit says? You know, it's this unbelievable conversation that he's not sure what to believe. But two things sort of, sort of uh, bring this whole, bring the unbelievable bits of the story into focus. One was uh, the uh, game warden says, you know, you have to say, you're going to lose everything that's stolen. You have to, you know, you have to tell us what's stolen. And the hermit says, you know, every single thing I own is stolen. He had been living in the Maine woods through summer and harsh winter alike for 27 years. And then the hermit says, you know, I'll show you where I've been hiding all these 27 years. And the game warden follows him in. They enter the uh, Stonehenge of Boulders and there's a whole beautiful setup camp, beautifully neat, so camouflaged. Every bit of the anything that could glint, like a snow shovel blade or a cooking pot, was spray painted camouflage colors. He was so precise to make him blend into the forest. He even painted his clothespins green. It's April 2013. News of Knight's discovery and capture starts to spread all around. Megan Maloney the district attorney for Kennebec and Somerset counties, gets a call at 3 o'clock in the morning from a Maine state trooper. And she said to me, you're, you are not going to believe who is sitting in my patrol car right now. The state trooper goes on to say that Knight is also talking. And not only talking, he's actually confessing. Has just admitted to burglarizing people's camps for... 27 years. Images of night in handcuffs quickly spread across Maine and New England. A pale man with a full beard and glasses. He almost looks like a professor. Perhaps not the image you might have of a survivalist, but certainly someone who's been living off the grid. But Mainers were hooked, fascinated. We started to hear all of the details about, um, you know, how this guy lived off the grid and lived alone in the woods all those years. Chris Rose was a reporter at News Center, Maine, in Portland when Knight was captured. When police reported this, that he had been finally caught, no one believed it. There's like no way he could have lived out there without electricity, without, you know, money. Or, um, and to this day, maybe some people still don't believe that he did it. But, you know, all of the evidence points to the fact that he did. And it was this, like, mystery among people who lived up there in the North Pond area in those camps that, you know... This kind of 
mythical person would be coming in stealing food and things and you know going back to wherever his camp was and just no sign of him this just mysterious figure to the point where it was almost just like this mythical figure it wasn't anyone real the north pond hermit was doing this ted veripatis was working on the assignment desk at new center maine when the story broke i i do remember <laughs> when the police finally caught him they uh they really protected him from the media they didn't want to expose him even though he was a criminal he i think he had this endearing quality to him where again we we were told after the fact when things would happen oh we caught him but you know we weren't given the heads up he was going to be caught or everything was going on uh you know after his initial court appearance i think the the cop that found him took it upon herself to protect him and make sure he was okay and make sure that he had living conditions every day and that he had food every day and then she, it wasn't that she became emotionally attached to him i just think she she genuinely wanted to make sure he was taken care of a lot like that state trooper like district attorney megan maloney ted veripatis saw that night was just different someone who found peace away from the rest of us he was a loner. He liked he would go to the woods. It was his quiet place. He felt safe there. And the more he went there, the more he liked it, the safer he felt. And eventually he just felt like, you know what? I'm just going to stay here. Uh cuz this this place makes me happy and the other places don't. And so it, instead of being just a getaway, it became his permanent residence. So Mike, who is this North Pond hermit? Christopher Knight, he said that in high school and even younger, he never felt comfortable being around other people. I think he said something poetic like, every encounter with another person felt more like a collision. Uh, He was just uh, socially awkward, very sensitive to uh, external stimuli, doesn't like to look you in the eye, very, felt very uncomfortable. And he said it wasn't something specific like like running away from a crime or any specific thing like that. He described it as like a gravitational pull, like his whole self was pulled to being alone. And uh, he, was, he graduated high school and took a job uh, actually installing home and car alarm systems, the only job he ever had, which came in quite handy during his career as a thief. He basically decided all of a sudden that he was going to try something radical, quit his job all of a sudden, drove deep into the main woods, went from a paved road to a dirt road to like a little trail, told me that he drove his car till it was completely stuck in the woods and was almost out of gas anyway. Put the keys on the center console and without really enough supplies, without much food, without a compass, walked into the woods of Maine. This is a place that has a lot of winter. There are animals, but they're few and far between. It's not like you can start grazing on berries. Some wild berries are good for like three days before they freeze. It's a tough place to feed yourself. And very quickly in Chris's sort of adventure, he had no idea. It was open-ended adventure. He had no idea if he would last a week, a month, or a year. Food, he realized, would be an issue. He started out by trying to forage. He started out in a warmer part of the year. Then he 
came across a few dirt roads. I think he came across a, a bit of roadkill, not very fun to eat. I think made a little fire and cooked it, tasted disgusting. Started foraging in people's gardens, but realized that winter was coming and that if he wanted to stay in the woods, he was going to have to steal. So, Mike, what was his process for this? That's my big question, because how did this guy break into homes hundreds, if not thousands of times, without even getting caught? Chris Knight was a master of stealth. And when he was at the last of his food, he'd be in his campsite, and he'd be like, okay, it's time to go on a raid. First off, he would do it at night. I mean, when I walked through these woods, and I'm, uh, like I said, I have decent woodscraft, I sounded like a bull in a china shop. I was snapping branches. I was rolling over boulders. And this is in the middle of the day. Chris Knight, who was blessed with not only a good mind for solving problems, like I said, he was clever and tough, but also really athletic, extraordinarily blessed with good coordination, was able to move through these woods, not only silently, but also he would only step on roots or on the boulders, the rocks here, and never leave a single footprint or break off branches that would indicate to an intelligent tracker where someone was. He was, and I talked to one of the master trackers of Maine, he was untraceable, Chris Knight. He could walk through the woods, he could move through the woods like a ghost. He liked it best when it was raining. Fewer people are in the woods. Never did it on a weekend. So week night, bad weather, very dark, silent ability. And then I told you he had a selection of about 200 cabins. And he broke into more than half of those, more than 100. And he liked to vary them. He didn't want to break into the same one all the time. And sometimes to get there, the fastest way was to cross a body of water. And the way he did this was to borrow a canoe. He would never steal a canoe. There were plenty of these cabins that just had a canoe up on a, up on a dock. And if, someone, if you take someone's canoe and they get there, they're going to call the police. But if you borrow someone's canoe and put it back and someone sees the canoe there and they think, I wonder if someone used this, they're not going to, there's your canoe. They're not going to call it. So he, they're not going to call the police. So, and it's funny, when he would return the canoe, he'd also sprinkle it with pine leaves and sort of make it look unused. I don't think anybody ever suspected that their canoe had been used. He wanted to be utterly cautious, and Chris Knight is a person who had nothing but time on his hands, though he was sort of limited by sunrise. He wanted to make sure he was home back in his camp by sunrise. But usually he would spend two, three, four, sometimes five hours at the edge of the woods in front of the cabin just wanting to be sure that nobody was inside, nobody was coming that evening, there was nobody there. You know, the obvious things, if there was music playing or a car in the driveway, that was clear. But even if it was completely empty, he just wanted to make sure no one would be coming there that evening. When he was perfectly sure that that was the case, then he would enter the house. And he had many ways to do that. If he had one of the keys hidden under a rock, then it was easy. If not, he sort of was a master at jiggling, just like he had a little Houdini-esque ability to jiggle, like just the smallest of um, screwdrivers, or he liked to use often a paint scraper or a putty knife where you could just slide it in the gap between a door and a knob and sort of pop the door open. As I mentioned, if he couldn't open a door or a window, without causing, with no damage at all, then he wouldn't do it. He would go on to another cabin and would open up the cabin that way. And then he always told me that the moment he had the door open or the window open, 
there was this sort of moment of nervousness combined with shame. But he knew that he felt that breaking the law was more important to him than having to interact with the world and would enter the house. He had a couple of things in mind. First was food. So he'd usually go to the pantry and to the refrigerator. And even for houses that were closed for the season, there would often be things left in the pantry, especially uh, items that didn't perish easily, which are great. And he would go and collect those things and he wore a big backpack and he would stuff those things in his pack, food first. Secondly was sometimes the essentials. If his flashlight had broken or needed some batteries, uh, he would grab those if he saw them. Third, he loved to read and he liked to steal your books and your magazines. And fourth, if he had some need, like his raincoat wore out or he needed a pillow uh, or another sleeping bag, he would take that. If he could lock up the house completely behind him, all the better. And he would go back in his canoe, stash the canoe where he'd borrowed it, sprinkle the pine needles on it, haul all the food in his backpack, do his magical dance through the trees, slip between his stonehenge of rocks and be back home for two weeks. So... This brilliant woodsman and thief is finally captured. And what happens next? Chris Knight, this person who had just spent 27 years with complete autonomy, and think about it, by the way, the age of 20 to 47, that is basically the heart of your life. Before that, you're a kid. After that, you're a middle-aged man. That's when most of us go to school, maybe go to college, start a job, career, get married, have children if we're going to do that, buy a house. Their whole lives are pretty much, that's the heart of it. Just did nothing but sit in the site in the woods and occasionally steal. And this person who was used to the complete freedom of the woods was then brought to county jail and locked in a cage. But the cabin owners themselves were highly divided on how they felt about these crimes. It's not the block of cheddar cheese or the package of bacon or your National Geographic. That's not the problem. It's your peace of mind, your sense of security. People told me, you know, they worked hard so that they could have a couple of days of peace in their week and that this guy stole it from them, that they never felt comfortable sleeping in their own cabin. People, children had nightmares about him and about half the people told me that if they actually caught him in the act, they might just let him go. One break-in can get you 10 years, and he admitted to 1,000. And I'm not you know, great at math, but that's a lot of years. And so when he was caught, there was a huge outcry. There were people that thought putting him in prison for life was fair. And there were other people who thought he should be released immediately. In fact, more than one person offered to donate land to Chris Knight free of charge and he could just go back to the woods. And the district attorney, the person that was going to determine what sentence Chris Knight would receive, she said, the law is not set up for outliers like this. News Center Maine reporter Chris Rose recalls how people took sides about Knight's punishment. All of these people over the years had been victims because their camps had been broken into, items had been stolen, and there was this really 50-50 split of some people who were really angry and wanted him punished to the max, and others felt sorry for him and thought, hey, if he needed food and this was his way to get it, I'm okay with that. There was this really like split right down the middle of a mix of the people who were angry and the people who were very forgiving of what he had done. 
District Attorney Megan Maloney appears to fall on the side of those that feel Knight deserves a second chance, that a lifetime behind bars was not the solution or the punishment for the North Pond Hermit. He promised that he would follow every rule, and he did. But even those seven months were just not easy for Chris Knight. He was a guy that spent his life avoiding the day-to-day routines of civilization and avoiding other humans at all costs. And I remember clearly afterwards, um, when he was brought into custody and had to serve time in jail, this was the first time he had any human interaction. And it was very difficult for him to be around other people. And once he moved from jail, he was specifically transitioned into somewhat of a halfway house where he had roommates. And part of it was to reintegrate him into society. So part of his, um, I don't know if you would say punishment or not, but they wanted him to be acclimated to being around other people. So he had to get a job. He had to live with other people for a while. And that was really, from talking to his attorney, um, that was a really difficult thing for him to do after all those years of being by himself. In all of your interviews with Christopher, did you ever get a sense beyond not liking people why he decided to head into the woods? The better question is why did he stay? He told me that he stayed in the woods because he liked it. He was happy. He was content. He told me, Chris Knight told me that he found the one spot in the world where he felt fully at home, fully relaxed. He was happy. And I think, I mean, honestly, not to get too philosophical here, I mean, what are we all looking for in life? Life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. And Chris Knight, when I talked to him about his 27 years in the woods, despite suffering often, he expressed more satisfaction, more pure joy, pure happiness than almost anyone I speak with out here in the regular world. So Mike, now seems like a good time to ask the question, what is Christopher Knight up to now? He moved back in with his mother for a while. She was shocked. She, I'm sure, had thought her son had died. They had no idea. And then he moved into his own place. And I was worried that also maybe uh, the publicity surrounding his story would make him some sort of curiosity object. But he, he, but uh, Central Maine's a pretty good spot. There's not a lot of tourists. And there's, he's been, as far as I know, left alone. He lives in town. But these are small towns. Has a job, I think, taking apart engines for scrap metal. I'm sure that he's not as happy as he was while living in the woods but has maybe carved out something for himself. Although I have to tell you, between you and me, I keep waiting to hear the news coming out of central Maine that Chris Knight has disappeared back into the woods again. Hi, True Crime Chronicle listeners. I'm Will Johnson. I want to tell you about another podcast we're listening to. It's about Jimmy Hoffa. When you hear the name Jimmy Hoffa, you probably think of the former Teamster boss's iconic disappearance. But his story is much more than a murder mystery. It's a story about power, loyalty, and betrayal, organized labor, and organized crime. It's a story about how far people will go to get what they want. Once you start looking into Hoffa, you find yourself down a rabbit hole of dark tunnels. You look at the Teamsters Union, and you end up with Richard Nixon, Bobby Kennedy, and the JFK assassination. All of these roads lead us back to Hoffa's obsession with power. There was nothing he would do to have it and hold on to it. Once he lost everything, how far would he go to get it back? The fourth season of Shattered, all about Jimmy Hoffa, begins December 3rd.
So, Spencer, this was definitely a true crime story, but with a, a different angle. And I think that it kind of taps into that whole theory that, you know, going off the grid is something that I think we all at one point in our lives kind of wish we could do like he did. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of people in Maine uh, generally live in rural areas and a lot of them have connections with nature, but he just completely rejected a lot of the technology of our lives. And he took that rural uh, off the grid living situation and took it to an extreme that very few people do. Okay. But I can understand doing that for a weekend, maybe, uh, uh, maybe longer. And I, can understand people's disbelief when they hear the story and you hear almost three decades of living on your own. I mean, it really, it's crazy. How does somebody do that? How do you not get noticed? How do you not talk to anybody else? How do you survive 27 main winters living in a tent? All right, Spencer, thanks for bringing us the story of the North Pond Hermit and Christopher Knight. Jessica, thanks to you. And also thanks to WCSH News Center Maine reporter, Chris Rose. And Ted Verapatis, we appreciate their help on this story. And a big shout out to Mike Finkel for telling us this story. And Spencer, I think you told me that a lot of journalists reached out to Christopher Knight to talk to him after he came out of the woods because there was so much fascination. Uh, but Mike Finkel, maybe the only one who actually got an interview with him? 500 journalists reached out to Chris Knight, and he was the only one that was granted an interview because he wrote Christopher Knight letters. All right. Thanks for listening to True Crime Chronicles. You can tell your friends and family to download and listen to True Crime Chronicles wherever you find podcasts. And Jessica, we have a Facebook group that has recently been rebranded, right? Yeah, well, we have a Facebook group page called Inside the Crime Vault, where we talk about this and other cases that we're covering. All right, so check it out, Inside the Crime Vault. We will be back next week. Thanks, Spencer. Thanks, Jessica.